0: Jeremy Quinn on the show. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. So you're uh, a man of the world these days, but for a long period of time, you were wine director at Webster's Wine Bar and Bluebird and Telegraph. And how did you get there? You moved to Chicago to go to school?
1: Yeah, when I was 18, I moved to Chicago to attend DePaul as an undergrad liberal arts, literature, philosophy, and languages. And I've been here on and off ever since. Wine wasn't the reason why I moved here, but... I was introduced to it actually first here, and then it was followed through in Paris when I left DePaul. How did that happen? DePaul is very good for many things, but liberal arts is not one of them, and I didn't realize that until two years in. I got kind of frustrated with my education. I wanted to learn more. So I dropped out and enrolled at the Sorbonne in Paris to learn French language and culture. My big goal was to be one of the best translators of Derrida and Foucault, and I was like, "Man, this is this is kind of my jam." Um, I rapidly ran out of money, as a lot of folks do, and,
0: uh, as Derrida did, as Derrida, did, yeah.
1: <laughs> Which is good because he once he lost his barber, his that that shock of white hair became like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> he was my James Dean for a long time, you know, leather that shock of white hair and leather and leather jacket. I thought was so cool. That um, scene
0: of him driving in the race at the, in the car is amazing. Yeah, yeah totally, wondering. with those gloves on. Yeah, it was great. I'm kidding. So you get to the Sorbonne. They drink wine in France. How did that go down?
1: Well, I got a really interesting introduction. My best friend's parents' best friend is a filmmaker that lived in the seventh arrondissement. And my best friend's parents asked him to w- look out for me while I was there to make sure I was eating. I wasn't, you know, dying in a gutter. So every Friday he would have me. Was open. that a possibility? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I was living in a garret at the time, eighth floor. Most days, i just have a uh, baguette and a coffee, and that was it. So every Friday, he'd it's have
0: baguette. good baguettes there,
1: though. Oh, baguettes are good. They yeah. could
0: do better on the coffee thing.
1: Oh, for sure. You yeah. know what I mean? I didn't Comparatively. That, I didn't learn that till much later. <laughs> I, I thought French coffee was excellent, and then I went to other places, Italy, and I was like, oh,
0: man. That's why people, all those you know, famous philosophers spend so much time in the cafe. They were just hoping eventually the coffee would get better. Right. You know? Like, if I sit here long enough, maybe they'll actually bring me a good coffee. I'm pretty sure that's how it all happened. And they waited and waited and waited. Being in nothingness is really about, there's really no good cafe on this menu. Oh, you Wait. stole
1: my thesis, dude. That was my total thesis was that, yeah.
0: Being and no cream. Yeah, I get you.
1: I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pass, but I, I did write a first draft.
0: So you, there's a filmmaker guy.
1: Yeah, and uh, so he had a wife and kids, and uh, his two daughters were both under 10 years old. And he had a, a really deep cellar of old Bordeaux and old Burgundy. I grew up in Ohio. Wine was not in my family history at all. Um, Milk, soda, water, that was pretty much it. So to be there with his family and see him open two, three, four bottles of old, vintage, high-end, famous wine every night and share it with 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 his daughters, with his wife, was something brand new for me. And I was really wowed. He would give a little history lesson on the vintage and the estate and who made it which I really appreciated. But what I came away with after that year that I lived there was the lifelong Im- impression of wine being much more than just a product. Wine is something that conveys an atmosphere of sharing and conviviality and culture more than anything. It it It's not something just, just to get hammered on, which as a 19-year-old was a distinct possibility. Most of my friends thought about it that way. But to see wine as a vehicle for culture just hit me and has really never left. But that was my first real introduction.
0: The style sounds kind of low-key in a way. I mean, he told you about the vintage, but it wasn't, doesn't sound like he was hitting you over the head with it.
1: Oh, by no means, yeah. Um, he was really responsive to my questions, and you know, I was like, well, what grape is that? And what grape is uh, that? And uh, my curiosity was limited because I didn't know that much. But, um, yeah, it was very informal setting, family dinner table. It
0: was great. And everyone's drinking, like the whole family.
1: Yeah, even the even the little daughters would have little cups of wine, which was really great for me to, to uh, see.
0: Because you were like, you know, if you don't finish that, and I like Mouton, so I'll have more. Oh, yeah. man, I wasn't nice with those kids. <laughs> yeah. They
1: would like half finish their glass and say, hey, look, look at that toy over there. And I'd take it. What there. are you going to do now? I'm drinking your wine. What are you
0: going to do? They're a little kid.
1: It's fun to laugh evilly in French. I really learned it there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you ever do the ah uh, Apouton thing? No, I didn't. I didn't. You should have been there with did, me. Did you do the uh, the motorboat lips?
1: Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah, often. I got really, really, really good at that, yeah. <laughs> and then the hand gestures,
0: too, yeah. Those <laughs> are harder to see on the podcast, but I let the record state that he was gesturing with his hand. <laughs> so, you get back to Chicago, and how does the wine thing carry through then?
1: Yeah, I promised myself at the time when I left Paris, that I would wine would be a part of my life again at some point. I, I. But my self-identity at, at the time was as a novelist. I was writing a bunch of novels and um, reading a, a lot I had the chance to publish. And I realized that if I wanted to go further in that area, I wanted to get my degree, which I hadn't done yet. So I went to the University of Montana. I finished my degree there in fiction writing. And a pattern in my life. I went broke there again and had to come back to this city. My, my grandfather lent me 200 bucks to take the Greyhound back here. And I was sleeping on friends' couches for about a month or two. And I had the chance to take an assistant wine buying job at Whole Foods, which I snapped up as soon as I could. What was that like? Uh, it was pretty terrible, to be honest with you. Um, the education side was really great. Whole Foods at that time, at the location I was at, was the wine aisle was kind of slow. So I would have my little cart and my little wines. I was stocking up, and I would have books open. And during the slow time, which was most hours of my time there, I'd just be reading books,
0: like in the cart. Like, yeah, keep the book in the cart.
1: Exactly, it was kind of hidden. You know what I mean? I had my bottles of like silver oak and whatever hiding my my French wine book. It was uh, Alexis Lichine that I would, that I was reading most. Um, so memorizing. Vakirash, all the AOC laws. It was really great. It was when I kind of was able to learn much more than what that job could have taught me had I not been curious. But I worked there about three months and got really fed up with the corporate side of things. I mean, lots of places do this, but they'd pit departments against each other to see who could sell the most and would give like pittance rewards to certain folks. Um, I was reading a lot of Marx at the time, so that really pissed me off. You know, I felt like a total slave. So I told my head buyer after three months, I was like, man, I, you know, I obviously love the wine trade, but I'm getting sick of this corporate atmosphere. So he mentioned a friend of his that was leaving his serving job at Webster's Wine Bar, which is right up the street from the Whole Foods I was at. And I went there that same day and talked with a the bartender there who called Tom McDonald, who's the owner. And the next day I had an interview and I was hired that week.
0: What was it like talking with Tom?
1: Oh, man, it was so great. A lot of owners, are, um, a lot of folks you interview with, whether the owners or not, are really they're into the facts of what you know and don't know and if you pass or fail you'll get the job whether you pass or, or fail um i had a friend once who interviewed at a restaurant and the chef asked him what pate was and he answered well you know pate is when like a bunch of friends hang out and drink beer on the porch man and he didn't get the job because he answered the question wrong tom would be the kind of guy that would hire that person because he gave a really cool answer um I was reading a lot about wine, but there's some things I didn't know. So, Tom had asked me, like, what, what, what grape grows here, here, here? And I didn't quite know the answer, but I conveyed something personally. And he was like, man, I really want this guy in my staff. So, the interview went great. And I think that type of energy carries through with the whole Webster's Telegraph, Bluebird, kind of the family, our, our uh, team there. It's, really, it's, it's kind of a powerful energy.
0: Where was Tom coming from? Where, where had he been before?
1: He and his wife met in a litigation firm downtown. Suit and tie. Um, they did a lot of work with chemical corporations, and they got fed up with their job. And this is, how I think, how the energy got started. And everyone that works with our team feels it. They quit the litigation job after they met and went to Europe for, I think, it was an eight-month trip, and went all over. I think they did a URL pass, and one of their stops was in Seville in Spain, and they had a, as they say, it they, they they found a dusty old wine bar, and fell in love with just how unpretentious the atmosphere was obviously you know spain you go to some place, places and they just serve their table wine out of the cask there's no name don't know who grew it per se don't know what vintage but it's great yeah it was dusty and mismatched chairs and wine out of the cask and they're like man we need to bring this back to our home city and they did that and they kind of worked on a shoestring i think they were 26 years old And the location was not the best. It was kind of on the fringe of town by a tire yard and a tannery. You know, the old thing of tumbleweeds blowing through. That would happen often.
0: Did you Um, hear that music sometimes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I still do. Actually, It's still in my head. I walk out of the house every morning and it's going in my head. Yeah, it was kind of a wing and a prayer. They started off really small. um, American wines mostly and... Again, their focus at the start was to share the culture and the energy. So my experience in France and what I had in my head for what wine is jived completely with what they wanted to uh, do. So that's where they were coming from. That's where I was coming from. And it kind of made a perfect partnership. And what year was that? That was 2000. So 14
0: years back. And how big was the program when you kind of started up there?
1: Not as big as it is now, really. Um, It was about, what was it? Like 150 wines? Uh, I remember at the time, you know, like 30 wines by the glass and maybe like 120 on the reserve list hewed very, very strongly towards the U.S. because that's what Tom and Jay and his wife kind of knew best. Um, I I remember the Austrian whites, there was a section for them, there was one wine. It was like an FX Pekler. South African whites, there were two, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? German whites, there were two Rieslings. It was really, really small, so... Things have changed since then.
0: What was the atmosphere like? I mean, what did it look like? I remember the first day
1: I walked in when I knew I was hired. I went there with a friend just just to hang out and get the vibe of the atmosphere before I started my first shift. And I told my friend when I went there, this place is so sexy. People still say that when they walk in. That, that part of it hasn't changed. Dark room, candle lit, kind of high energy, servers running everywhere. Um, people waiting in line for 30 minutes, one hour just to get a seat, just to have one glass of wine. Really high energy and really great. And the location that I mentioned, you know, kind of worked out best for us because people would enjoy being on the fringe of the city and sharing something perceived as sophisticated. So you can see how that might have worked for us really, really well.
0: What were you doing when you first started there?
1: Serving tables six days per week um, and tending bar after the first six months. And then I started to manage certain nights, started to work private events and then started to work seminars. So serving at the start and then very quickly kind of octopused out and started to do everything.
0: And how was it coming along with the wine on your side?
1: Oh, exponential. I mean, yeah. I mean, I told you I was reading books in the, in the aisle of Whole Foods. This was something completely different. Folks say all the time, you know, you don't really learn something until you begin to teach it. And I, I really, that, 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 that was really hammered home there my first couple of years. One of the big focuses that Tom had for Webster's and still does of the many, we'll talk about some others perhaps, but um, was education. There were seminars every twice every month, usually on Wednesday nights, focused on a grape, focused on a region, focused on a vertical tasting, what, whatever. At that time, that was very unique in the city because it wasn't for professionals. It wasn't for industry or trade. It was for just regular guests. They would pay like 40 bucks and they would have 15, 20 wines, taste between them, take notes. Now that's kind of commonplace, but this is 14, 15, 16 years back. That was kind of new for here. So crowds would be huge. And Tom would invite me up to help conduct the seminars, help pour. And to hear customers ask questions that I would never think to ask myself really forced me to expand my knowledge base and taste different things that I might not have otherwise. Oh, about
0: wine. Not like, why are you wearing those pants, Jeremy?
1: Well, that happened too, yeah. But that's a scar I'd rather not (laughs) revisit. Yeah. yeah. And it was more shirts than pants, honestly. (laughs) My socks were terrible too.
0: So what was your own direction in terms of learning about wine? Did you feel like you kind of went through different periods or that you were into things and then moved on to other things? Or how did it go? Talking about myself is sometimes awkward, like most folks. But I think...
1: My trajectory was—it has been a bit unique, to be honest. I, most of the colleagues I talk to and still work with around the country even say that they go through phases where they start off with their big jammy in phase. And for years, that's all they had was Ravenswood, you know. And then after a while, they're like, oh, well, maybe I'll give Bordeaux a quick shot. And then after years passed, all they're drinking is Burgundy and they're not, you know, awake very often. Um, just kidding. But, you know, they go through this thing of like big heavy wines into more delicate finessed I was introduced to Burgundy when I was a teenager, so um, I've I never had my Zin period. I never had my big jammy thing, um, and maybe with,
0: coming up in the future. You
1: know, oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah! I can't wait. Next I'll time p- I talk
0: to you, yeah. You're like, Did you know you could
1: do sixteen percent alcohol and a red wine? <laughs> that, that might happen in six months. I have no
0: idea. Yeah, yeah. Anything's possible. You <laughs> know? Yeah,
1: um, and so I yeah I never had that period. And philosophy was my background in a in a, in a big way. So you know. Walter Benjamin's concept of authenticity. and um,
0: You felt that that tied into wine, oh, authenticity. Absolutely.
1: Oh, absolutely. Deleuze and his talk about imminence and Bergson and the Elan Vital, I, um, purity and authenticity were always my driving thought with wine. So, um,
0: How so? I mean, how does that really relate for you?
1: Well, you talk about terroir being reflective of a, an origin. And a lot of the philosophers I was reading at the time were structuralists, phenomenologists, seeking textural origins of structures. And when I was introduced to the concept of terroir, that jived completely with what I had already been been introduced to you know, on the philosophy side. So seeking the transparency of a wine and how it can tell of its origin was exactly the same thing as doing a close reading of some text, whether it's St. Augustine or something else, and, and finding the real mental structures that, form their origins. So for me, there was a, it, it was an easy dovetail between those two.
0: For me, multicultural thinking and terroir thinking are kind of the same thinking. Those sure. One's for agriculture and the other's for like people, you know, like saying like, you know, don't subsume yourself into another culture, like be true to your roots of culture. Don't like get sucked into a melting pot thing and change who you are it is kind of the same as saying like, don't spoof my wine, bro. Oh, Can absolutely! You know what I
1: mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, difference is identity on one level, you know. And you and to valorize difference, as you're saying, I mean, it's true for for how we live, and it's and it's absolutely true for 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 wine. Also, I mean, homogenous wine is pretty much the standard these days, and it's and it's so boring. So. Why not be the person that valorizes difference?
0: And what about some of those other philosophers whose names I can't say? I mean, how did you see their concepts like the Elan or what Deleuze said fitting into wine? My
1: trajectory has been a little bit different. I remember very distinctly, case in point, um, I had a really beautiful bottle of old vintage Borgogno Barolo. And I was sharing it with a colleague friend It was a busy night on the floor at Webster's. And... I didn't have much time to chat with him because I was so busy. I had other tables to, to, to uh, talk to. He just said, give me whatever you're into right now. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you have to taste this 96. It's off the charts great. Um,
0: 96 is great for Borgonia.
1: Yeah. The reserve, yeah. I love it. Great stuff. And I had just gotten back from a trip to Piedmont. So I met uh, Peta. What's her name? Beautiful mm-hmm. lady. Um,
0: yeah. uh, uh boy. We had a
1: great afternoon. Chiara. Chiara Boskis, Chiara Boskis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super charismatic, obviously, right? So I was really into it because of her, and I knew the estate and the vintage really well. So I have the, I have the landscape in mind. I have her in mind. I have her charisma in mind. And I pour the wine. It's not corked. I'm like, cool. I'll come back in five minutes and hear your thoughts on it. I wait on some other, other, some other tables, and I come back. And I'm like, so what do you think? And I'm expecting to hear like, oh my god, the body's beautiful, the texture's great, you know. And he he's swirling it, he's looking at it, and he said, well, I think it's like thirteen five alcohol. I bet the TA is seven point one, and I think the soil type is exactly a blend of limestone and sand. And my face just fell. I was like, dude, really? You're gonna you're gonna eviscerate all the poetry from this thing and just scientifically analyze it. That's the last way I wanna appreciate wine, and that's not how I want others to like it either. I'm coming back to the point in a minute. But first I, I, I really wanna say that the terroir point not only has to do with origin, but has to do with the moment in which you experience it. I think there's a there's a terroir there also that has to be taken into account when you enjoy wines. You know, if you're sitting in a room with fluorescent lights and no windows. And you're trying to pick a wine apart scientifically, analytically. It's a much different experience than where you're at a, a crowded table. You can't hear yourself talk because of all the laughter and the clinking glasses. Those are two different terroirs of experience. And obviously, I would hew much more towards the latter of those two. So you ask about, you know, Elan Vital Bergson's thoughts specifically. That For me, that comes back to the, to the terroir of the place that you're enjoying the wine and not just its origin. You know, Elan Vital is like the spirit that runs through things that can't be analyzed. That's how we grow. I think our being is based on becoming, first and foremost, that movement is primary, not stasis. And I think that's absolutely true with, with
0: wine also, if that makes sense. It does, because it's not a static thing.
1: Exactly. Wine's not static. It changes all the time, as we change too. So to pretend that we're an objective observer, judging a static entity with wine, I think is is to put terrible blinders, you know? And as I said earlier, to, to eviscerate oneself of, of that poetry. And why would you cut yourself short like that? We only live once, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, if the music stops, it's over, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's the continuation that makes it happen. Exactly. Know? Like, it, there's no more music if it's over. So, at what point did the, uh, Tom say, hey, you know, Jeremy, you seem like a bright guy. How about we kind of put you in charge of the wines?
1: We started to talk about that in the winter of 2002, um, and then I actually took over the list in April of 2003, not only because he thought I was the right guy for the job, but um, he and his wife were having a family with their kids and he couldn't spend the time to sit down and taste and rewrite the list every 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 day, every two days. So the change in their life kind of coincided with my growing passion. And it was a nice kind of, again, dovetail.
0: What was 2003 like? Because, I mean, in the kind of post-September 11th, 2001 era, the... Dynamics of dining seemed to change in markets that I was watching. What was it like in Chicago in 2003? Probably
1: similar to what you saw. I mean, it actually benefited us quite well because we're not a, a high-end formal place. And after September 11th, um, Iraq and all the rest, high-end places that were downtown were suffering. And a lot of servers from there were applying to places like us because they knew we kind of fit in that beautiful middle tier of like not low-end, not high-end but the product is sophisticated enough to attract great employees. And you don't need that much money to come in and enjoy great wine. So we actually thrived through that period. Our biggest period, I think, was like from 2000 up to 2006 when we were really jumping. So yeah, that kind of didn't benefit us. But um, we, we we actually did quite well.
0: And it seems like, if anything, when you look at dining trends in major cities... That kind of venue has been the venue of growth over, say, the last decade. Like the one in the middle that does high-quality ingredients but is more casual feeling. Yep. I think so, too. Did you see a lot of people like that at the time? Or has it been a lot of growth since? Or how did you see that change come about?
1: I'd say in the last five years. That's really, really boomed. Yeah. I think perhaps because business owners began to see that trend and witness it. You know, they might have a high-end concept that doesn't fly. They look around to other restaurants that are high-end that don't fly, and they're like, well, if we really want to do things well, that we need to start a little bit smaller and then build from there. So I think that's a trend that's just been the last five years thing.
0: And Tom was a guy who, instead of kind of doing the same concept or expanding that concept to a bigger space, uh, did multiple concepts. And he opened Bluebird and Telegraph, and what were those like, and when did that happen?
1: So Bluebird opened in 2007, and that's in the Bucktown neighborhood, and then I opened Telegraph in 2011 in Logan Square. And I, yeah, as opposed to growing big, getting more corporate, bringing on more partners, those locations were definitely built on the same philosophy of of education and exposing more folks to great wine and quality products. The same size spots, but just in different neighborhoods. So people that couldn't come to Lincoln Park to Webster's Wine Bar, but they lived in Bucktown, could go to the Bluebird. And Telegraph was the very same thing.
0: And he segwayed you into doing the wine at all three.
1: Yes, yeah. Again, I, when I took over in '03, I began to drastically change that list. We'd sell out of the U.S. wines, and I wouldn't bring them back in. I, I, I was traveling heavily throughout all, this whole time, so going to Italy, going to Austria, going to France, and. With one Austrian white on the reserve list, that didn't fly for me. So I had to like bring in a lot more Gruners, a lot more Rieslings. Really started to blow that part up. Really started to blow the Rieslings up all over the world, really. And people began to recognize that. And that, that was a big thing for the city and for the colleagues. And then that happened along with other things for several years. And when we opened the Bluebird in 2007, it only made sense that Tom said, well, you should keep doing what you're doing. And run both lists. And I, I said I'd be more than happy to because the more wine I can bring in, the better wine I can bring in, as you
0: know. Because a lot of times when people talk about Chicago, they talk about New World wines as a scene.
1: Yeah, it's true. Um, the city's been very conservative in my experience with its buying. And a lot of the time, I think we're in the Midwest, you know, we're not on either coast. So the European travel that our consumers are able to have is a lot less from what I see. So people's wine experiences, if they do travel for wine, is mostly to the West Coast, sometimes to the Finger Lakes, sometimes to Michigan, which is making great wine now too. So the demand for great European wine, I saw kind of had to be pushed or cultivated. And a lot of the buyers that I saw, and it's, this is still true, I hew much more closely to where the wine drinker is at than where they perhaps should be. So that's remained true to this day a little bit less, but American wine was what people were asking for. And so I think that's one reason why the US trend was here because the buyers would follow through with what folks were asking for.
0: And how did you go about bridging that gap between what people were asking for and what you were interested in selling? I was in a
1: great spot to be not only buying the wine, but being on the floor as well. So for me, it was a very easy gap to fill because I didn't need to Bring in the wine and just hope that it, that it would be sold, I would be behind the bar actively talking about it, educating the staff on it, tasting constantly with the staff doing baseball blind tastings, making sure everyone knows what's what's up. So if someone came in asking for a certain wine, new world, let's say, high alcohol that we didn't have, I would try to ask questions that would gear them into what they were actually looking to taste and not organized around some name that they thought that they knew, which would happen often. And it became very easy to gear folks into something that they would like better but had never heard about. And they would thank me afterwards. Like, wow, I, I never would have thought to ask for that. All I knew was Duckhorn, and now you're giving me this, you know, this great trousseau that I would have never thought of. So being on the floor made that bridge
0: very easy to cross. I've sort of found with the more current generation, like millennials, that exploring is like half of what they want. That's half of it, more than Anything else? Almost. Oh, yeah, it's quite true. If there's no exploration, there's no sale.
1: Oh, it's quite true. I'm I'm really happy to see that. Actually, Um, I've seen that too. I'm happy to see it, but at the same time, I think sometimes you can go too far that way. You know, exploration for exploration's sake, I think, can be a little, you know, a little douchebaggy. Honestly, you know, do you know what I mean? Meeting a customer's taste is always great, but to give someone a von John just because. It's Vengeance, you know, I, that's, for me, that's a little bit boring. So I like that more folks are curious about travel and the weird, the exotic, but I always tell my staff to don't go too far that way because you could easily just be doing something for its own sake. And that's, I don't think that's really fair to the tradition and culture that those
0: wines came from. So it sounds like a lot of your engagement stemmed out of having traveled to the regions. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and absolutely. How did that get going, and what do you f- feel like sustained it? Because it seems like you've done more traveling than many people in the business. Well, like I, again, it
1: goes back to the atmosphere that Tom started at Webster's. Even before I started, he opened the, the wine bar in 1994, so six years before I, I was there. Even in the years before I started, late 90s, he was taking the staff to California, Sonoma, Napa, for a week, and driving around, visiting all the growers, and then coming back, and... That continued under my tutelage also, only instead of the States, I was taking the staff to Spain, to Austria, to Germany under the auspice of Webster's. And then any owner wants their bar to be the best. Tom quickly saw that if I didn't travel, our bar, you know, we would not be able to have the, the best wines or the cachet that we could possibly have. So um, he was kind of pushing me to go more, you know, if a few months would pass and I hadn't gone on a wine trip, he'd say, what's up, man, you got to get out there. That's a privilege, and I'll I'll always be grateful for. It was built into my job to do that.
0: What yeah. were some of the key early European travel experiences?
1: Oh, uh, definitely Austria in two thousand two. My eyes were completely opened there. Uh, the Mosel, going there for the first time. You know, a bottle of Riesling, a great Spätlese might cost sixty five dollars. Let's say Grazer Himmlerreich. You know, and if you're used to a thirty dollar bottle of reasoning, or even twenty dollars. Like man, sixty five dollars for reasoning. I mean, I can't say the name, and I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I'm just going to choose what's safe. You know, once you see the slopes where that those grapes are grown on, they can be fatal if you take the wrong steps. And, I, and I'm not joking. You know, sixty five dollars seems so cheap. You're like, I can't believe it's only sixty five dollars. I'll
0: pay you sixty five dollars just to get off this slope. <laughs> I know. Yeah, totally, totally. Just don't push me. Don't push me.
1: So seeing that just opened my eyes like, wow, th- this is worth every penny. You, you know, um, the value difference in my head began to really change. Every chip's valuable. but I, I would say those two were really, really crucial.
0: What was Austria like in 'O two? Because it had already seen the 97 vintage, but it wasn't getting a lot of traction amongst the American consumers.
1: Well, at that time, Gruner Veltliner. You know, people talk about the Gruner boom. Was it 2001, I think? 2000 yeah. here at least? Probably the same in in a. Uh, well, York? you guys had
0: Vin DeVino. So I yeah. think you may have had a little bit been in the backyard of of things happening for that.
1: And their Austrian book is huge. And I I was really good friends with the Vin DeVino cats at that time. I would say Austria in 2002, for my experience, was giddy. A lot of the growers were... Sons and daughters that were taking over estates that were owned for generations. So most of the folks I was meeting were my age, you know, like Johannes Hirsch is still a super young guy. And you know. Sure.
0: Or even like Nicky Saw or yeah, Neil These yeah, guys totally. aren't that old, but they were probably taking over right about that time.
1: Nicky's younger than I am, I think, you know. And I remember just goofing off with him, you know, and um that's not the kind of experience that I had elsewhere, you know, we'd state the old men in their caps and ties, tasting around their wine, and then saying bye. I'd beat Nicky, and he was like, let's party, dude. You know what I mean? That, that was like a really engaging thing That's that stemmed to like a lifelong Austrian passion for me. And it doesn't really have much to do with, oh, I love that vintage. Or, you know, I do like certain sites, but it has more to do with, when I taste the wine, I go right back to that giddy, excited time. You know, the wines were new to the States. They were selling a lot of Gruner for the first time. The scandal was forgotten about by this point, and everyone was kind of going after the gold ring in a really happy, joyous way. So I still think that way. I still feel that way when I think about Austria and when I go there.
0: Was that sort of a bridge wine for a lot of people in terms of getting out of Sauvignon Blanc and Fumé Blanc? and
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I, it was uh, Fred Loimer's lois Gruner, I remember. Um, groovy was a word that people would use to... Talk about it with consumers that didn't quite know how to say Grüner Veltliner, and yeah, it was it was once once they got an appreciation for Grüner Veltliner, a lot of folks would say, well, what else is out there? What else haven't I heard of? With Sauvignon? What's that? What's that taste like? And then, I mean, the doors are wide open to everything, Chocolate, whatever.
0: It just sounds like you also did some work with different kinds of menu formats back in the restaurants, different kinds of organizational patterns. How did that work out for you? What did you choose to do?
1: Uh, Sometimes not so well. When we opened the Bluebird in 2007, you know, I'd been doing it for, you know, seven seven years at that point. I was really getting into, I was really jazzed about soil type and how that had to do with external climate. And so one of my favorite novels was... uh, sound and the fury i think that was the one that faulkner wrote where he did um, multiple inks right red black
0: yellow for the different characters i just know that that was actually the name of the um mike tyson of ender Holyfield fight yeah. where tyson bit his ear yeah and i always thought that was incredibly ironic that it was called the sound and the fury and he actually bit his ear i always thought was it fixed because they that was what it was called before that happened. Right. Like, that was the name of the fight. Like, Thriller Manila is the name of a fight, you know? Sound and the Fury was the name of the fight. And then during this fight, this guy's like, I've got a good idea. I'm going to chew on this dude's ear. I think that was timed. Yeah, that was scripted. Totally. Yeah. I think Don King was like, you know, I read this great book by Faulkner. I got an idea. I'm going to write a few paragraphs here. Let's see how it goes. Act one, scene one, angry black man comes in and bites ear. You know? It's like, what the hell?
1: Don King and Faulkner, man. That's a marriage made in England. Hey, you know, yeah.
0: you say Derrida had nice hair, but eh, Don King, huh? <laughs> He's got a picture of Derrida Don over King. his over his
1: over his bathroom mirror. Every morning he looks at it. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Is Don King still alive? I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. I would wonder one if he were alive and then two if he were imprisoned. Like these would be active questions in my mind.
1: It's very easy for me to confuse him and James Brown. You know, I think they have the
0: same. <gasps> Hit <leg>. me! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. It's a man eating ear world. Yeah, I oh, don't forget it. You got to perfect that. I yeah, can't yeah. wait to hear yeah. the whole song. Oh, yeah. yeah, man bites the ear that builds the toys. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so Faulkner.
1: Oh, yeah, Sound of the Furious. I was really into like soil types and climates and, um, how you could write a wine list with different types of ink, you know, it's like, well, you know, you could do color coded blue, color coded green and color coded red. No one had ever really done a wine list that I had seen that was based on soil type and climate. So I had a chance with the brand new list. It was going to be like 120 wines long, probably 20 by the glasses. how we started. And I organized everything by river Valley, which I colored green, um, coastal, which I colored blue and inland continental, which I, which I colored red. And that's how the wine list was organized. And I really wanted to create new synapses in folks' heads, so that you know.
0: Did you have any colorblind people like fucking up their order? <laughs> They're like, dude, I actually can't see green. Could you just point out the coastal wine? Those are the restaurant critics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. The restaurant right, critics. Right. Yeah. Um, so so it met with a little bit of resistance. Oh
1: man, huge. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of folks thanking me for it, but they 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 were like, oh my god, I'd never seen a list like that. You know, you get. Some Ligurian Vermentino, and then you get uh, Albarino from Galicia. Both of those are coastal in my organization. And most other wines, one would be Italian white, and the other one would be Spanish white. Right. And you're not encouraged to compare them. So I I think you can learn a lot by doing that. So I was kind of forcing the issue, saying, well, Albarino and Vermentino actually have something in common. So why don't we put them right next to them? other taste? And for me, it was really exciting to be able to like, Force new ways of thinking. But I remember the first review of the Bluebird that came out. They're like, man, the food's great. The room is great. It's sexy. It's fun. Too bad about the wine list. And like the, the three sentences about how confusing and pretentious, off-putting it was. And I remember getting really upset with that because I was like, well, it's not meant to be pretentious. It's meant to be friendly and engaged you know and curious maybe
0: if you'd drawn it in crayon ah. colors it would have seemed less you know yeah, intimidating but, uh, you know you going for the childlike thing
1: <laughs> with those lines those little hashtag lines right a b c d e oh that would have been great just draw it on the wall
0: no but i mean i think in a way that's kind of breaking with what america did right which was sell on grape variety
1: oh yeah for like yeah. as an industry which i've say, always like, hated yeah you
0: know the Europeans do it by region, but we're just as good as the Europeans, and what we're, we're growing is the same as what they're growing, and so that's why our wines can compete with that, and we're not going to break it down by region. So, in a way, it's separating from like what people might have seen at a French restaurant, where it's by region, or an Italian restaurant, and what they might have seen at a steakhouse, where it's like Cabernet and Merlot, Chardonnay. And so, you were going a third way, where you're like, let's look at local influences, terroir of the place. And not a lot of people have done that.
1: Oh, precisely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me in the wine world is when people get, get hung up on words. You know, words, of, obviously, from we're talking, they're pretty deep in how I think. But, um, you know, nothing frustrates me more than someone that only knows the word cab. And they don't even know that it's...
0: Also it, taxi. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: Someone asked me like, to, to call them a cab once. And I was like,
0: you're a cab. Right, right. I don't know, sir. You look much more Merlot to me.
1: He actually did. He looked a lot like that. Yeah. You know, kind of supple, kind of juicy.
0: Mm. <laughs> little plump, little <laughs> plump around the cheeks. Very, Delicious. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and, I, you know, not only words like cab or, you know, I want a Sauvignon Blanc or, you know, um, but it's also for region too. Like you, you, you can get hung up on the word burgundy. You can get hung up on, I want a fine Bordeaux. And to shake folks up, to get them out of their, you know, words can obscure things as easily as they can. Describe things. So to get words out of folks' head and just get into what you're tasting, that's what I've always wanted to do. I think that's the best thing you can possibly do. Is like, well, I don't like this. That's that's the only reason why I think blind tasting is valuable at all. Actually, is to get folks. I love blind-tasting folks and wines that they've told me verbally that they hate. They don't know what it is. They're like, wow, that's so really So you're kind of okay. an asshole. Yeah, Secretly,
0: absolutely. you're sort of an I, asshole. I, man, I shouldn't be on this program.
1: <laughs> man, no going to find out. No, but I mean,
0: uh, you know, that guy that's like, oh, you said you didn't like it, but I brown-bagged it <laughs> to see for sure. I mean, you know, I, I only do, that it's <laughs> do it's not the nicest thing to do. It's not the nicest thing
1: to do, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's valuable. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, yeah, I am an asshole.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, Margaret Mead, you know, to talk about someone that did more sociology than, than philosophy, but she said that the, you know societies can be defined kind of where the fault lines are. What is considered like over the fault line, what's considered too over is also the dividing line of how society is structured, right? Sure. And I find that that's true for wine lists as well, where you're like, you know, if it turns out that because it's out of region A, whether that be Bordeaux or Burgundy, that people don't want to buy it, and for that reason, everything on the other side of that line is quite undervalued or cheap. That's how the wine mind is structured, whereas the wine mind could be structured on, say, this tastes delicious or this is good with food, as opposed to some sort of regional bias.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The So, yeah, we, we actually were forced to change the list like six months in because resistance was so strong. Um, I was glad I was able to do that list at least once. Probably in the future, I'm going to try some list like that again, maybe even a little bit more. Stimulating more, more pushing at some point, but um, yeah, six months in we were, we were forced to kind of change the list and, re, and reorganize it to make it more friendly to folks. The wines didn't change, but and what did that look like? Well, we had to pull it back to something that I didn't quite agree with, but the customers really jived with it. Was organizing by alphabetically by grape, which is something I didn't want to do in the first place. But we tried something really adventurous, and um, we had to pull back and change. But we learned some, something, and that was seven years ago. So things have changed even since then which is why I think we were able to open Telegraph the way that we did. In, in you know. Um We wanted to open a new spot. We wanted to share wine in Logan Square. The neighborhood's kind of booming at at the time, mostly and still is, like cheap beer and cocktails. And we're like, man, we need, we need to introduce everyone to wine in this neighborhood. So on my travels, I had the Paris wine bar, the natural wine bar in my head. I just went to Chapeau. Like Chapo.
0: Vervolle, yeah, Vervolle. yeah, exactly.
1: I wanted a big na- natural wine bar tour um, just before we opened there. And I was like, man, we need to bring that culture just like – Webster's Wine Bar was based on a dusty old bar in Seville, Spain. I really wanted to bring the Paris Statue Wine Bar vibe.
0: And how did you see that? I mean, what is that for you?
1: It's super cash, you know what I mean? It's, well, wines without additives, wines with native yeast, wines with as minimal sulfur as possible. And again, not for their own sake, not because they're esoteric, because that that embraces a, a way of life, which I thought matched the neighborhood that we were in very well. And had a lot to do with the potential vibe of the place in terms of what they did in Paris, in terms of like, hey, you know, we drink these wines not because they're, and they might be really rare, but not, we're not drinking them because they're uber rare, but because it's a, it's a vent de soif. It's a wine to drink, not because it's a, it's a vent de gout. It's not a wine that, that you keep. So for me, vent de soif is not just how buvable, how drinkable that wine is, but it has a lot to do with the energy that you do it in. And maybe pricing. And pricing, sure.
0: Um, I mean, it's you can't drink it if it's too expensive, right? Sure, like you know, that's part of being drinkable.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, such, such that you could pass the bottle back and back and forth and share it, as opposed to pouring it in a glass. And it doesn't cost either person more than ten euros or twelve euros. So, I really like that whole vibe and energy and the culture. So, I, I really wanted to open that up in Logan Square.
0: Did that get a better reception than the previous run of a wineless organization?
1: It did, yeah. We had a, we had a f- fantastic first two years. It was really, 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 really great.
0: You started to work with your own selections as well. You started to bring in wine. And how did that get going?
1: 2009, 2010, I was doing some heavy traveling in France. I took the staff. It was part of a, a three-part, three-year Riesling Training that I was giving my staff. We started in Germany in 2008. We went to Austria in 2009. We went to Alsace in 2010. It's amazing to work with the same staff that dedicated to be with me for three years, and they had, they they had
0: already been with me for a long time. Did you find that those kind of trips lent towards retention of staff? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like that people stayed because of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I fourteen years for me. I've I worked with some folks that've been there for sixteen. The newest part of our staff has been there for four years now. I mean, you don't really find that in many restaurants. So that traveling with each other, bunking up, taking care of each other when you get sick, when you're on the road, that builds a sense of loyalty, which is kind of irreplaceable. So
0: this is a Mike Tyson joke—the irreplaceable.
1: Yeah. Oh man, I wish I had one right now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but I mean, so somewhat like a work life that's also kind of a family.
1: Uh, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Which is which is great because we could. Go to Austria in 2009 and talk about the, how the, the reasons we were having there differed from our Rieslings that we had in our German trip, and then when we went to Alsace, compare that back. And so you build this kind of university of knowledge with your colleagues based on where you've been. That's that you can't get from just tasting. You have to kind of be there. So Alsace in 2010, I was doing a lot of French traveling during that time, and I was seeing a lot of wines that weren't coming to the Midwest at all that I thought should be and. Um, and so I started to think about ways that I could do that. And I thought about, you know, leaving what I was doing and being an importer, which means a warehouse, which, which means a license. Um, I really enjoy being a buyer for this group and this family. A lot of loyal customers. So I didn't. I knew I didn't want to do do that. And I knew about the model of a broker, someone that works with an importer with a back label that people can trust. Um, there's very little investment on the broker's side. You just kind of working as a networker, basically. So um, that worked out to be a great solution for me. And I started with two estates in the Savoie and Alsace, and was planning to build it to five or six or seven, maybe 12, partnering up with a local wine importer and
0: distributor here. But you also probably had in your mind a place where those could go, i.e. Bluebird, Telegraph, and Webster's.
1: That's the great thing of it. Um, the spot I was in was... A lot of the wines I was looking for at the time were way off the beaten track. Mondu's Jaquer, some old vintage Vendage Tardive from Alsace, and others were in my head even more esoteric that I really thought this city would love. Importers and distributors wouldn't pull the trigger on bringing those in because being esoteric, they had to do a lot of work to educate their sales staff, and then they educate the Psalms to buy it, and it was a big risk to bring those in. The fact that I was already in charge of several wine lists... And I was broken the wines in. I mean, I, I, I didn't have to train myself on what the wines were. I mean, um, so I was in a unique spot to take risk out of the hands of the local importer and say, if you'll bring this in, I'll be the one to start buying it. And I'm really grateful that not only was, was I able to do that, but a lot, a lot of other Psalms in the city saw it and started to purchase those wines too.
0: Because in a way, if you have wines that no one else has, you kind of have a distinct advantage as long as wines are good where people are like oh well i have to go there to get it so then other people are kind of like hey, i wonder if i could get a piece of that to put on my list yep and eventually you kind of wound that activity down and why did that happen
1: uh, yeah i wound it down this year 2014 has been a crazy year of change man lots of stuff is changing um not only for me but a lot of other folks in the business um I'm eager to see what's going to happen with the rest of the year, but we're in the midst right now of consolidating some of our restaurants, thanks to life choices that Tom has made, that I'm making, that one of our other partners, Jason, is making. And with all the other changes going on and the consolidation, it didn't make much sense to keep going with the Jeremy Quinn selections label. I might pick it up again at some point later when things are a bit more solid, but... um. And also, you know, great folks like Zev, you know, that's Zev Ro- Rovine. Yeah, you guys have already spoken, I think, on the program. Um, he and I are friends, and my focus on natural wine, which I wanted JQS to be, I could only give so much time to. It was very much part-time because I was running four wine lists. Um, so what, he came into the market soon after I started. And as a full-time job for him, and nationwide, I think, right, he's been able to go leaps and bounds farther with it than I had been so it seemed the right time to kind of give him the field and fold it up in a friendly
0: way so you were on that down and then also Webster's went through a transition
1: yeah just recently about two weeks ago we're talking right now at a really interesting time not only for the restaurants but for me and the city too so yeah what's basically happening it's a simple thing we're consolidating Webster's and Telegraph into the location and Telegraph in Logan Square so Webster's Wine Bar has been open for 20 years phenomenal run and we shuttered Webster's last week, and last week I I helped huff three hundred plus cases of wine over to the Telegraph spot, and we're going to be reopening Telegraph in about four weeks, keeping the Webster's name and using the wines from that cellar, still keeping a focus on the natural side of things.
0: And why not keep it as Telegraph? Why not?
1: The, there was something I, as I said earlier, like we had a great first two years run, and. Third year, for whatever reason, we started to get a reputation in the neighborhood, especially, but some somewhat citywide, as being too high end. You had to wear high heels there. You were obligated when you walked in the door to have a three course meal. You had to sit there for three hours. The wines you couldn't pronounce, and if you did, blah 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 blah. And um, you know, there's a lot of PBR in that neighborhood. There's a lot of shots and cocktails, and if you've got that option and that option, it's easy to choose the former. So the third year got really awkward for us. And I think a lot of the connotation had to do with the name of Telegraph. So Webster's has never had that. It's known around the country and a lot of places around the world, thanks to our travels, as being a really cool, chill spot. So to bring that name over, we're hoping we'll bring that same connotation to that place and kind of change that perception.
0: And you went on a travel trip recently that actually had a big impact on what may happen in the future. And how did that come about? I knew all this stuff
1: was going down probably in March and April. And my personal life's changed quite a bit too. I'm, most of my things are in storage and I'm staying at different friends' houses for the past couple of months and... Uh, I was invited on an Athena Imports trip to Greece for two weeks. Andrea Inglesis, that's the president, is a good friend of mine. We've been tasting wine with each other for years, and she's like, you, "You should come with us this this year." It's two weeks, and I said, "Yes, I'd love to." The winter here, as I'm sure the same as in New York, was just so brutal. brutal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah the polar soul killing, polar hell. Yeah. yeah, I think that's why a lot of change is happening now. Everyone's leaving town.
0: Um, is that true? People are just kind of over. I do know people oh, like that in New York who are like, oh, a lot oh, of yeah, folks, California bound. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm just chatting with someone like a at a bar where I go to, and he's like, "Yeah, I th- think I'm going to L.A. per minute." I'm like, "Whoa, you know, I didn't expect to hear that." Everyone's coming out with that now.
0: So um, I've seen a lot of interest in L.A. from New Yorkers over the last, say, three four years.
1: Sure, yeah, which sure.
0: surprises yeah. the hell out of me because when I grew up, nobody wanted to go to L.A. Like well, L.A. was the place you didn't want to go. I it was like L.A. Like, story, and you know, it was like bad bad movies. Like you know, like Steve Martin making fun of. People with too much jewelry on and, you know, driving all the time and road rage and stuff like that.
1: I still see LA like Annie Hall, you know, people wearing radioactive suits because of the sun, you know. Asking what their mantra is. Yeah, exactly. Jeff Goldblum is everywhere there for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Every guy's Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally. Or Tony Roberts talking about the VPS. I mean, like I wearing that, yeah, yeah, wearing the stuff, like yeah. the,
0: the radiation suit or whatever it is. I love that scene. In yeah. the convertible.
1: Yeah, totally. The chains and the hair.
0: It's uh, good times. Paul Simon never looked better. I'll tell you. I agree. I agree. He look like a pimp in that. So, uh, people were leaving, and oh yeah,
1: people leaving. Winter hell was was, was at polar hell. So, um, a two week trip to Greece. I was like, thank God. I you know the rosemary. Yeah,
0: Greece sounds good. Yeah, yeah I it heard it's great. warm there. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, lemon trees and sea and rosemary plants and land- I was just like, yeah, I'm gonna go. So, around March or April is when I said, sure, I'm gonna go on this trip and. I knew I wanted to extend my trip a little bit more to do my own thing. That's kind of my habit. I'll, if I go with a group of sommeliers like I did with the Athenae group, I always like to tack on some extra weeks just for me so I can travel on my own. Because you're there break. in
0: Europe already. So you yeah, already have the flight.
1: Exactly. I'm already there. You know, and I love traveling with groups. You meet new friends from all over the country. But sometimes it's best, I think, to go on y- your own so you can break when you want to, go, go as fast or as slow as you want to Um So I knew I wanted to tack on two more weeks. And I've always wanted to go to the, well, not always, but the Republic of Georgia has been a destination for wine, for me, ever since I finished Patrick McGovern's Ancient Wine, the great book about the wine's origins. I've
0: never read that. What's that like?
1: Oh, man, it's great. So good. I mean, people call him the Indiana Jones of the wine world. And I think it's
0: absolutely true. And you know, he's... Can he saber with a whip? Is that what you're saying?
1: (laughs) Well, he wears the jacket well. I I definitely would like to be in a whip sabering competition with him. That would be a lot of fun. Someone brings a gun and he brings a whip. No, someone brings a saber and he brings a whip, just like that scene in the first movie.
0: Oh, just takes it right out. Yeah. Or right, or right, he can like go up to a bottle and take the heart out of it <laughs> and just and just drink the best part of it. Oh yeah.
1: man. Yeah. And it's gotta be champagne, of course. No, cognac actually. Just with just his take hand the heart. just on the
0: thing and it just, you know, comes right out. That should be his like on
1: the cover of the book, yeah.
0: Oh dude. I mean, that's what paperback editions are for. You know right. what I mean? Let's sell some books.
1: But the but the book is great. And he goes to Iran, he goes to Georgia, he spends time in China, if I recall. And it's not, he's a scientist, and it could be a really dry, boring book, but um, he makes an, a narrative out of it, and adventure, so it's great. And uh, he spends a lot of time in the Republic of Georgia and kind of concludes that that is likely the origin of domesticated wine growing, and talks about what the wines taste like. I told myself when I closed the book, I was like, someday I got to get there, so... I told the Greeks and Andrea that I think I wanna add two more weeks on and go to the Republic of Georgia. They changed my ticket. And at that time, a lot of the Dresner growers were here in town and I was, they're friends of mine. And I was really grateful to be able to hang out with them here and, and show some hospitality from our city. Terry Puselot is a good friend of mine. Um, he imports Georgian wines to France and I was the first person to do that as far as I know. And I told Terry, I was like, I think I'm gonna be going to Georgia in late May. What can you tell me about your, your experience here? It's like, oh, Jeremy, Jeremy. I don't know why I'm using a Lebanese accent, but he's like, Jeremy, he's like, Georgia is paradise, you got to go. He doesn't sound anything yeah, like that. He's sound- like
0: selling you a carpet <laughs> no, in terrible. that ad. Yeah. It's terrible. And <laughs> I will also fix your car <laughs> and sell you a watch. Like, what the hell? I don't know why, but that's yeah. my
1: default foreign accent. Yeah, yeah, that's and, the foreign
0: accent. And yeah. I speak
1: French, it's terrible. <laughs> But he has got good, like, Puselot's carpet sales in, like, the 5th in Paris. It's fantastic. The Peter de
0: Anise carpet is amazing. Yeah, the pattern is just intricate. It's not thick. It's not heavy. But it just sits on there, like, a wonderful floating little bit.
1: It sounds just like the wine, man so yeah i told terry i was like yeah i you know i i want to be going there who do, who do i talk to he told me it's like it's paradise there you really got to go he gave me some names to contact and he said but first off you got to contact john Werdeman. he's the winemaker of pheasants tears um and that was like one of the only georgian wines up to that point that i had had i had an amber wine from him that i
0: just loved I, i've told you perhaps before that for a long time i thought it was peasants tears peasants tears yeah i thought it was like a communist thing or something like that
1: and that's why you chose it you're like hey, well, i just didn't peasant. understand
0: i just misread the label and for like a couple years, I was like, oh, you mean peasant's tears? Yeah, let me go get that for you. I don't know. And then, I don't know, one day it dawned on me that there was like a bird on the front of it, on the label.
1: Dressed like a peasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I don't know. There must be peasant birds, too. I mean, every society has a hierarchy, right? You Indeed, yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, what was that guy like? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean. Did he have an accent, too, or no? He's He talks like this, uh, you know. <laughs> I got some good
1: tzitzik for you to taste.
0: Uh, uh, no, but he's from like New Mexico or something.
1: Yeah, he's born in Santa Fe. Um, so American expat, really talented painter, um, and he did his PhD study in Moscow, and that, and then he went down to Georgia as a. So big, he's big, a spy.
0: That's what you're saying. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> he, he wears an eye patch really well.
0: Yeah. Um, that would be a great movie, that, that Indiana Jones uh, wine guy and him together. You know what I mean?
1: We could do that. We could find a producer. Totally. You know what
0: I mean? Yeah. Searching for the grail. The spy who came in for the... Glass of wine. Glass of wine. <laughs> cool glass Moore of wine. Or something, yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, he's a great guy. And uh, he, he really welcomed me with open arms. I contacted him and, uh, by email and I was like, hey, John, I think you know, this is who I am. I'm from friend Terry's. And I think I'm going to come. I really just want to
0: spend two weeks learning from you guys. What did he say?
1: He answered me immediately, like next day, and he said, "Man, he said any friend of Terry's is a, a f- is a friend of ours."
0: Um, so he, said, he speaks like he's in the mafia.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: If I could read it, <laughs> is accent, he a friend of yours, or, or is he a friend, he a friend of, of Oz? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, like any industry, a lot of the. Did wine you worry
0: modes... about a Mo Green special where you're like, he's gonna shoot me in the eye? I can just feel it. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm kidding.
1: No, it didn't worry me. Yeah, it yeah, didn't it was Didn't come up. No, yeah. no. Uh, my imagination is not as fertile as that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um yeah, a friend of his is a friend of ours, you know, um, just buy your ticket. I'll be there. Don't worry about anything. And, uh, I said, great. I bought my ticket and I was expecting to hear some kind of itinerary, um, between the two months between that. And when I was arriving, I waited one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and I didn't really hear much back from him. So, um, like three days before my arrival in the capital city of Tbilisi, I sent him an email like, Hey John, like, you tell me at least a little something of what I'll be doing, you know, um, who I'll be traveling with or where, where, or where I'm staying. And he said, no, I, I I, really can't tell you that yet. You just need to trust. You need to have faith and just show up.
0: I saw that movie about Hezbollah where they blindfold the guy, put him in the back of the taxi, you know, show up, you know, was it like that? Yeah. Like we, we can't tell you where you're going.
1: As once I got there, that happened. I walked <laughs> off the airplane and the blindfold came out the back of the car the difference between that and Hezbollah is that they were tasting me out on wine the whole time and talking. <laughs> I was taking notes blind.
0: Yeah, Hezbollah, not so big on a wine, I've been told.
1: Right, right. I mean, that's the real definition of blind tasting. You know? I mean, you <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And you're in a trunk. <laughs> All the wines were like gasoline. It was like old Riesling. It was awesome.
0: But it, it kind of sounds like he wasn't nice to you, but in fact, he probably was nice to you.
1: Oh, he was being the most gracious that he could, actually, because that the last part of the email was, to plan too far in advance would be unfair to me. He said... Uh, I need to have a deeper idea of what you mean to achieve before I set things up. I was kind of like, wow. And not not, not that many people that you haven't met yet are that conscientious about your needs. You know, I was like, wow, that's great. So I told him, okay, cool. I'll just show up. So the day I got there, I met him at his, at a wine brother that he owns there called vino underground, um, whose shelves, by the way, are stocked with all the wines that the naturalistas love. You know what I mean? A lot of friends' labels were up there, p- lots of wines too. Um, so I knew that was the right place. John gave me a big hug. I, he asked me why why I was there. And I told him I want to learn. I don't have any agenda here teaching about the wines, the terroirs. I need to m- meet the growers and see as much of the country as I can. So he gave me a glass of pheasant's tears and got on the phone. And 30 minutes later, he'd planned my whole two weeks. And the two weeks following that, I, I traveled like I never have before, and I, I'm kind of seized, seasoned now on the ground. But from one night to the next, I wasn't quite sure where, where I was going to sleep. Um, I was picked up from winemaker, dropped off, picked up from winemaker, dropped off. Um, Skin Contact, Alice, Alice's new book about Georgia, she, she, she talks about a very similar trip. And that's kind of how they roll there. You don't plan stuff too far in advance because things change so
0: rapidly. So You mean in terms of people on the ground and like what situations are
1: Yeah, you walk into someone's home for an afternoon tasting and, you know, I mentioned Austria earlier, let's say you're at Rudy Pickler's place and you've got two hours there, you taste through all the vintages and you're like, okay, cool, so nice to see you, let's go and meet our next person. George is not quite like that, you know, Um, you walk in there for an afternoon and you start tasting and then you start eating and then you start tasting and then they say, why don't you spend the night here and we'll go through some more cha-cha on their local grappa there and blah, 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 blah. You can't say no because it's hospitality. You know, you see some of this in Italy and Spain as well, but I've never seen it so overwhelmingly in Georgia. It really blew
0: my mind how they did that. So, a lot of toasts, a lot of cheersing, a
1: lot of toasts, a lot of toasts. Yeah, I really took that culture to heart. You know, drinking
0: um, it down to the bottom of the glass, kind of stuff. Well,
1: it wasn't always glassware. Some there were there were times it was a giant horn that you were drinking out of, which is a beautiful thing because I didn't realize they drink out of horns because you can't you can't set it down, so you're forced to. Take it all in one big swing. It's some of those can hold like half a bottle,
0: if, if
1: not more. Maybe you should have done that at Telegraph. Yeah, it's true. Given a second chance. <laughs> we, a horn bar.
0: You're required to have three courses and drink from the and horn. Drink from the
1: horn. That would be my ideal restaurant to have, actually. is like I think you've, you told me once, and I still share the story, that your ideal restaurant would be all... Nebbiolo, no food menu and no water. And yeah, that, but old Nebbiolo. Old Nebbiolo. Yeah, yeah from
0: like the 50s to 60s. I, I thought that was pretty funny. The like, stuff you have to like double the can for six hours. Like, oh, you're here? Well, get used to staying here. <laughs> right, right. And right. maybe some white run where you can't tell if it's oxidized or not. Those are your options.
1: I think my ideal place would be menu-less. Uh, here I'm being candid actually just you just walk in and you get you get served you know you get fed what we're making and you drink what we're drinking and trust us that we've already thought through the pairings and it's true to the place that it comes from so I'd love to have a restaurant where I just hand someone a horn and say this is how we do it here and you're going to learn a new cultural way and not to be an asshole but just you know just to show folks that are open-minded about new ways of doing it because that's what opens one's mind. Me and folks like me that travel and come back and like, oh my god, my mind was blown. Now I got to blow
0: yours because
1: you're gonna, you know, because you're, you're gonna love it. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna thank me for it. So
0: yeah. Oh. After you put down the horn, you can shake my hand
1: if you can stand up. If you can stand up, given that,
0: you know, a few years ago, Kermit Lynch was like the best business to be in as, as a barrel maker because everyone's using burrings. You know, this was a while ago, but you know. And it, it dawned on me about a week ago, I was at a biodynamic grower and I was like, dude, this horn business is going to fucking take over. I mean, how many horns could there really be? You know what I mean? Like, people are going to, I mean, eventually there's going to be a need that outstrips supply of horns. Like, I mean, you know, at what point are we going to be like, dude, we need to fucking come up with some horns today?
1: Well, that's when you get the whole culture of fake horns, plastic horns, synthetic horns.
0: Forged horns. Forged horns, Yeah. You know? Like, I I see this as a problem, dude. Unless some 3D printers can, like, come up with some horns. I mean, these guys are going through some serious amount of horns. No joke. I went into this cellar, and the guy's like, let me show you our historical cellar. And he took us into the...
1: Where, where, where?
0: This is in Austria. I don't want to... Okay. So, we go into this other cellar, which is the the cellar that's the original cellar. Like, the one that's kind of like a Roman vault kind of thing. And you're like, that's cool. Like, maybe they keep the old vintages in there. There's like a crypt, like a you know rectangular box, and he opens up the box, and that's where all the horns were. Yeah, there was a cellar for horns. Yeah, for sure. And, and at that moment, I realized horns are going to be the fucking gold mine of a market in the wine business. Fuck Barrique Horn, get in it, buy low, sell high. I'm telling you, horns, dude. That and clay, for sure. Well, I don't know. I don't. I mean, people are going different on the clay thing. You know what I mean? Like I like them, but I, I honestly feel like. Not so popular amongst the people. I get a lot of negative vibe. But I enjoy. And I think it affects things beyond just like, uh, you know, people are like, oh, uh, flavors of barrique or flavors of clay are added to one. It's not just flavors with clay. It changes the pH. Like, it changes the acidity. I mean, I guess barrels do things, too. They set the color, the micro-oxygenization. But clay changes acidity. And so I think sometimes that that is helpful. Like with Robola Gialla, where you have really high acidity and really thick skin, so you have high tannins, maybe you don't want high acidity and high tannins together, mm. you know? So I think in that case, whoa, clay is great. With Chardonnay, where you don't have that same quite high acidity and same quite high tannins by itself, maybe you don't need clay, you know? So I think it's, you know, people, eventually we're going to figure out where it works and where it doesn't work, hopefully. That people will give it the chance to figure it out before they write it off. Because I see a lot of people writing off clay.
1: Yeah, that's too bad. And I think it's a real shame. I I, I can understand the pushback, but I'm, there's so much more to it than just clay. I mean, that's not just a unitary word. That's one of the things that kind of flooded out my thinking in terms of clay in Georgia. Because they were like, well, not all clays are alike. And they were talking about the terroirs of different hillsides. where They would pull the clay from because of the different pH and the Per, and, and the porosity, so that matters in clay where it comes from, how it's dried out and tossed before it's even formed and fired, what shape it is in terms of narrow or thick, how large it is, how deep it is under. I mean, all these things matter to the f- finished flavor. Um, so I think the folks that are writing it off haven't looked into it carefully enough, honestly. you know.
0: So and, what's and it and like the like taste uh, amphora rooms? Like when you go to the shed and there's all these holes in the ground, what's that like?
1: Oh, man. Again, like nothing else I'd ever done before, you know, some, most of the quote, and I say quote wineries, open air, no walls, someone's backyard, there's five mouths, like clay mouths that you can barely see, and that's it. There's a trough over there where at harvest time they foot tread, and there's a hose where that goes right in, and then they seal it, and done. So the tasting experience out of those is something else, because my favorite one was the thick clay on top of the quevery is what they call them, the clay pots. It took about 25 minutes to cut through the clay to get to the sealant to open it and siphon out by mouth the wine that's inside. And to be honored with someone doing that is a lot different than just, you know, opening a bung and they're really committing to, to doing that for their guests. And uh yeah, the flavor is like nothing else I've ever had before in terms of the complexity. I've had the bottled expressions before, but right out of the quevery, there's a real kind of raw, grit energy going on that comes through with the bottle, but even more so straight out of it, I think.
0: Because in a way, that sounds like a replay of an experience you had earlier in your career when you were drinking like Jolie for the first time.
1: Oh yeah, very much so. Absolutely. I mean, that was my first introduction to to Bio-D wines. You know, I mentioned purity being one of the objects of... if you want to phrase it this way, my trajectory in wine. But 2003, when I was first taking over the list, that fall there was a tasting downtown here in Chicago, and many wines were on the table. Nicolas Jolies from Sauvignon was one of them. I'd never had his wine before, and I wasn't really sure what biodynamics was. I wasn't introduced to his wine as a biodynamic wine. It was just Shannon from Savignières, and I knew what that was. But I tasted his wine, and I, you know, it was it was dark, a little bit beige. And I was like, "Wow, is this flawed? I'm not sure." I tasted it, and boom! Like my palate had never had anything like that before. I had flavors of coffee and soy and balsamic, and I'm like, "Wow, this is Shannon." I was used to Shannon being clear and transparent, high acid, apple, chamomile. So I, I started asking questions. I was like, "What makes this wine different? Why is it so? Uni- why is it, why is it so unique?" And was introduced to biod and what that means and what that does. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole nother level of responsibility to the Earth and thinking about lunar planets and cycles. And uh, I started reading a bunch of Steiner. I flew to France and met Nikola and was like, really got into it. So that moment was similar to what I've had in Georgia recently was was that feeling, you know. And Puselot has a great phrase about the Georgians when he went there and saw how they do things, how simply... And Puselat's not a heavy interventionist, as you know. When he went there and saw that, he was like, man, everyone in France works way too hard. He was like, they work way too hard for a product that's not as good as what you're doing, and you're doing nothing to it. So to taste the living thing that's still fermenting in, in that jug straight from it is, is a great experience.
0: So it's like winemaking on strike, is what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. No, but not to take away from it. So you, you go there, and you're like, how can I be a part of this world?
1: Yeah, that's how I felt, for sure. At the end of my two weeks where I was handing off from winemaker to winemaker, traveled through much of the country, I spent my last two days with John Wordeman back at Pheasant's Tears. My first time really seeing him since I went on this epic journey. We met in Tbilisi, and he took me to his winery's town of Signagi, which is a little bit further east. And uh, we get into what could take place with me, with Puzla, with him, with the Georgians. I told him about the consolidation that's going on with our restaurants here. I'll still be a part of what's happening in Chicago in the months and years to come, but I told him I'm kind of a man in motion right now. I'm not sure what my next step is going to be. And he was like, well, Jeremy, you're a natural fit here. I'm going to keep my eyes open for you for opportunities as the months pass once you get back. So I said, thanks. We had a big heart to heart and I came back to the States. And like a week and a half ago, he sent me an email Talking about a new opportunity that's over there. So you're going to head back? It looks like it. It looks like it. There's there's a new project opening in September. It might be October. We'll see that they're calling something of a historic project. The focus of it is curating comparative tastings between wines of Western Europe made naturally and wines of Georgia made
0: naturally. Oh, that sounds like it can be kind of right up your ballpark.
1: Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, it's attached to a 60-seat restaurant. They've got guest rooms there. So it will be something of a sommelier gig. But what I'm hoping to turn it into is something that I can inviting friends like Ariana and Terry and Gernot and all those guys to Georgia to be with me in the room as we're tasting through the wines with journalists from Moscow, from Tokyo, from San Fran, maybe some winemakers too from there. I'd love to have Chris Brockway come back with me and see how they make wine there. Cause I know he wants to, and make that kind of an international station for learning for education. So as a next step, it makes complete sense. What um, do you
0: think Georgia could show the world?
1: Oh, not to work as hard as we think we have to, in, in many ways, not to be afraid of clay. Non-sulfur, like no-sulfur wines, are, can be completely okay, depending on what you do with it. And they could teach us how to make far more sincere toasts than what we're used to. They can teach us how to drink more.
0: What's the relation of those kind of wines raised in clay with food in Georgia?
1: Very symbiotic, as you might guess. They've been doing it for eight thousand years now, if not more. So, um. I hate talking about wine in terms of flavor. I'm obligated to in the business, obviously, talk about raspberries and peaches, but I'd much rather talk about textural stuff. But it is true that there's a lot of flavor symbiosis that happens there. I've never been sitting down at a wine-tasting lunch where they have raw tarragon out on the table for you to eat as you're tasting. Um, Tarragon is so pungent, it would just overwhelm anything. It's probably a different strain of tarragon there. It's a bit more mild than what we have here in the States, but... With amber skin contact, sometimes as six weeks, six months long on this on these uh, skins, it picks up really exotic characters of cumin and mustard and actually tarragon flavors. So tonal that that uh, same molecular compound that exists in von Jean, I think, also is created in those wines. Thanks to the contact with the skins and the enzymes that happen with the juices. So, as a flavor background, von is makes a really clear case, I think. Or that's an easy way to think it through how how those wines taste. So, you get cumin, mustard powder, tarragon, and then you have raw tarragon, and you're like, "Oh my god, this this is great!" And you're thirsty for more, and you want to eat more. Thirsty for more, and you want to eat more. A lot of the food there is very piquant, um, a lot of, very spicy, but not as hot as like Mexican. A lot of chilies are there, a lot of garlic, black pepper. And it's amazing to see how some of the Indian influence from India and the Asian influence and the, and the Russian influence kind of combine to make complicated, heavy, rich, spicy food match with skin contact amber wines, which is not something that would make sense in your head if you think about it. But once you taste it, you're like, oh, it makes perfect sense.
0: And what about a connection with the church in the region? Is there a connection between wine and the Orthodox Church? One of my favorite things
1: about how they make Koevery wines is the the history of it in terms of creation myth. Their narrative for it is like the earth gives you the grape. You put the grape back in the earth with its skin. They call the skin the mother. So it sits back in the day. It always used to be nine, nine months, is what I was told, which is the same as a woman's childbirth. So the juice, which is the child, sits with the mother in the earth until the juice, the child is strong enough to live without it. And that and at that point you rack it off and serve it. And that's exactly how life is born in this ancient creation myth. And they 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 reenacted every harvest with the wine. For me, that's a that's a that's a really harmonious way to think about what you're drinking. And that's pagan. Like that's way before the church. So once Christianity came to George, I think it was 4th century AD, maybe maybe the 5th like Jesus with Dionysus, Christianity just absorbed the pagan myth. And now, instead of thinking about things in terms of childbirth, they think about things in terms of the Christian church, Jesus being reborn afterwards. A lot of the destinations that I was visiting on my trip recently were, were monasteries. And they, they celebrate holy days with wine from the earth. And um, yeah, there's a definite rebirth element to Christ, going back to Dionysus, and even farther, That's involved with how they they think about wine, and it's intimate with the church. In the Soviet era, and even prior, during the invasions, the multiple ones that Georgia suffered, um, in many ways, it was the monasteries that helped the wine culture survive the violence. In the same way that the Cistercian and Benedictine monks in Burgundy, and in Germany, too, did that same thing. Thank God for monasteries.
0: Jeremy Quinn, he's following a narrative of how wine has survived. In the world. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Jeremy Quinn of Telegraph, Bluebird, and Webster's Wine Bar. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs,